Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 48 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen. I'm the director of Sun Positive, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Roger Warnock. Roger is well known within the Irish social innovation scene and was awarded the Nesta and Observer New Radical Award in July 2016 for his research and design work for the Book Reserve, supporting young ex-offenders in Belfast. He also has over 20 years hands-on business experience and a successful record in social innovation research and design work across all sectors and is both a Winston Churchill Fellow in 2013 and a Claw Social Fellow in 2016. Roger currently manages his professional time between Social Nibble and the Young Foundation, one of the world's leading social innovation think tanks, where he's the program lead for Ireland. Prior to this, he served in a variety of senior roles in business, government, and social enterprise sectors. Roger's key specialisms are corporate social innovation and research in entrepreneurship and innovation, which he is recognized for internationally. So in today's podcast, we'll discuss Roger's insights on how we can get business to create more social impact. We'll get Roger's thoughts and perspective on corporate social innovation opportunities, and we'll hear what Roger believes can be done to create more stable futures for Ireland's most marginalised young people. Roger, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, great to meet you, Tom, and uh, happy to chat away here, so go for it. Fantastic. So, Roger, to start things off, could you please share a bit about your background and what led you to a career specialising in social innovation? People ask me this all the time and I kind of tell them I'm an accidental social innovator because I'm actually a conservationist at heart. Uh, so I have a degree in zoology and geography and oh, yeah. uh, I suppose just the end of my university days, it kind of took a, a weird and wonderful turn. Um, I was offered to go out to Tanzania to sort of survey the reefs because they were throwing sticks of dynamite in and killing all the fish, but I couldn't raise enough money. So I ended up going into a career within the corporate world into standard life, a big insurance company. So uh, yeah. actually a project manager by by trade. Yeah. But I've always had a real sort of interest in fixing things and solving issues. I think my mum and dad come from farming background. I think that's always been in me, that sort of very deeply held mm. sort of values and motivation. So I kind of always was involved in charities and raising money for charities and helping people. And kind of just over the years, that's built and built and built. So alongside working in sort of corporate life and then for my own businesses, I was also doing a lot of work with charities and social enterprises. And then eventually it just got me and eventually said, you know what, got to do this full time. And that's what I've been doing for the last probably seven or eight years now. So, mm. so yeah, it was just, it, it comes out of everything. I, ultimately, my mom and dad, I think I blame for getting me into this game. So <laughs> Pointing the finger. Great. So, yeah, exactly. so, Roger, as the director of the specialist social innovation consultancy called Social Nibble, what sort of projects are you involved in and how are they creating positive social change? Um, well, from a social nibble point of view, um, as I say, I, I'm very much into design thinking and all the stuff that IDEO does. So 
the job of Social Nibble is kind of designing these projects. Mm. So, the, you know, the one that you just mentioned earlier on, the, the Book Reserve is the one that I'm well known for, which was specifically setting up a social enterprise that worked with ex-offenders. But where it was globally unique uh, was that they were all parents as well. So what we were trying to do on that one was reduce the really, really high levels of reoffending here in the UK, which is, for those kind of 18, 24-year-olds, about 70%. And in some parts of West Belfast, it's 90%. Yep. But also the fact is that 60% of those guys' kids will actually grow up to offend themselves. Mm. So a long-term thing was trying to change that sort of piece where the fathers become engaged with their kids again and try and stop that by giving them a positive future. So that's kind of the big project I'm, I'm known for. So I specialize a lot in young people uh, on how to help marginalize young people, um, mm. especially around entrepreneurship and and looking at social innovative ways to do that. But also the other key area that I'm really interested in is corporate social innovation. So the stuff around shared value and a new framework that I've designed called Social Jam, where how do we get businesses to be more socially conscious? A lot of the focus is always on the big corporates, but what about all those smaller businesses underneath? Because, you know, in, in Europe alone, 90% or 99%, sorry, of all businesses in, in Europe are actually SMEs. They're not corporates. Mm. So imagine the power if we were able to get them to actively tackle social issues across Europe and, and globally, it would be massive. So those are two key areas that Social Nibble works on. Yep. And then also I work, I work for Young Foundation. So... You know, Young Foundation is famous for its ethnographic research and participatory research. So we, we do a lot of work in communities. How do we empower communities um, to come up with those innovations, those ideas that can be transformative within them? So mm. we do a lot around understanding the issues within local communities, not going in and telling them what the problems are. And from that and through storytelling and lived experiences, we can start to draw out what the kind of the purpose or the common purpose within that community is, and then we can start to develop the idea. So kind of three or four key projects that I'm working on. Um, but, you know, those are the three, three that are you sort of most important at the minute in, in my day-to-day work. Mm. Well, there's certainly some really valuable projects, that's for sure, some great work. So you wrote a paper on sustainable shared value, which our listeners can download from your LinkedIn profile. And this was mm-hmm. a topic that we also recently discussed with Danielle Joel. So how can the corporate world best implement strategies that create shared value and how does it differ from CSR? Well, I think the first thing is to look at CSR. CSR is normally just bolted on the corporates. Um, They find somebody, you know, yeah, I'm I'm not being critical here, but a lot of companies will either get a charity, will approach them and say, hey, do a pitch and we've got this great charity, can you help us? And they will. Mm. Uh, And it looks good in the company doing that. Or alternatively, a company needs to do something good. So they set up a CSR wing and they do that. That, That's very a broad brush sort of description of CSR to me Mm. because there's a lot of really great companies out there doing really, really good CSR. But where companies need to, the game changer, some companies are now turning to a certain shared value and similar sort of stuff is how do you actually bring that piece back over into business strategy that it becomes day to day to the operations um, and that that's critical um, we, we won't be able to me we won't be able to solve a lot of social issues without doing that because business has these massive resources massive skills everything else and if we can harness that then we can, we can tackle some of these real wicked problems we have so that's that's kind of what I've been focusing on for the last couple of years mm. but the key, key to me about the corporates is that they still sort of, you know, the CEO might pick a charity or or something that he wants to support. To me, companies need to look more local. They need to look, look at the communities that are surrounding them and try and align those communities with their business. 
And by doing that, they can find that sort of common purpose. And once they find that common purpose, I think they can really knuckle down and sort of solve a lot of these problems that are, are more locally local mm. than some of the big corporates that maybe look further afield to sort of solving some of the big global issues in Africa or somewhere like that. I'm, yeah. I'm more interested in what we can do locally, so across Australia, across the UK, whatever it may be, because... There's, there's a lot of problems at home, and we need to tackle those. And I think that's where we need to focus the, the corporates or the SMEs below them. Mm, yeah, very, very interesting. Roger, another one of your areas of specialities is inclusive leadership. So yep. what have you seen as some of the most common traits of an inclusive leader? And what advice would you give to leaders who are unfamiliar with this style? Um, I did a, a presentation recently to the British Council on this to all their diversity and inclusion heads across Europe and I kind of came up with eight sort of traits that I think are, are essential in inclusive leadership. Um, mm. I'll quickly read them out, you know, I, just, I jotted them down this morning. So first one was awareness, you know, knowledge is power. Constantly keep learning, uh, keep reading, keep keep sort of looking at other things that are going on out there. Curiosity as well, which is kind of leads on from that. Passion. If you're not passionate about what you do, people will see right through you. Um, Also, you've got to be courageous, be able to sort of put your head above the parapet. Collaboration, which is key. Um, Perseverance, you know, never quit or keep going. That was one of the things with the book reserve, you know, something we had to keep doing and many challenging things Mm -hmm. we did. Um, Then values and authenticity. But but out of those eight, uh, the most important ones to me really are, well, passion. Passion, as I say, if you're not if you're not passionate about what you do, why 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 bother doing it? You know, people will see through you, and that leads directly into sort of authenticity. You know, if, yeah, if you if you're yeah. not passionate about what you do, you're not going to be authentic. Yeah. So you you need to do that. And the other one, which you know, I suppose value values is very important. You know, there's been a couple of occasions over the last few years where people have questioned my values, and you have to be brave enough to stick to those values. Mm. No matter what, um, because in the end they will they will stick. You know they will stand in good stead further down the line, as yep. opposed to changing your opinions or whatever. Uh, and then finally, collaboration. A lot of people talk about collaboration, but to me, it's not. It's more just cooperation. Mm. Uh, we live in a world where a lot of organisations are very silo and have a silo mentality, and um, they don't want to collaborate. They just want to cooperate. They want to find out what you're doing. Uh, and then probably use that on you. And it's a, it's a, it's certainly a problem in the UK in the third sector. Mm. Here, that happens a lot because people are struggling to find money and funding and stuff like that. So, how do we how do we do true collaboration? Um, how do we truly open each other's sort of not open your hearts, but you know, open the doors that yeah. you can effectively work more closer together without sort of those hidden agendas? Mm, yeah, really, really interesting insights. Fantastic. So, as program lead at the Young Foundation in Ireland. What have you found to be some of the fundamental ingredients and the most effective programs that you've been involved in? Um, well, our signature program here is Amplify NI, uh, which is a big lottery-funded program that we've, we're sort of halfway through two years in. But yeah. the ingredient, is it a gradient? It's more a way um, of how we do the work. Mm. We, we go by a sort of a phrase called tread lightly, listen deeply, mm. because the nature of Amplify is about transforming communities, empowering communities to bring out their voices and finding what those narratives are for change. And you, you have to go in, treading lightly is going in 
and not sort of, as I said earlier on, sort of coming up with a solution straight away. Yeah. You need to sit in there. It could take you several months just to talk to people and listen to people. And that's mm. where they listen deeply is. You've got to listen deeply to really, truly understand what the issues are in those communities. Too many other sort of organizations or government will go in and say, okay, the unemployment rate is 25%. We need to do something. Yeah. But you've got to actually understand what the reason for the unemployment is in the first place. Mm. It, may, it may be that it isn't. there may be plenty of jobs but they may be the wrong jobs or people are disengaged for other reasons or whatever. So yep. uh, to me, it's, it's those two things to tread lightly when you go into, into a community or a group of residents and then to listen deeply with them, to really mm. engage with them. And that can take time. And a lot of times, a lot of organizations aren't prepared to take that time, whereas at the Young Foundation, we are, because we really do want to find what the, the solutions are, the right solutions, the right ideas to, yep. that we can support them with. Yeah, it sounds to me like a very common ingredient that many would argue is, is the core of an effective design thinking process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you've, you've got to listen. You've got to you've got to do the whole empathy yeah. mapping and all that sort of stuff because if you don't, you're not going to truly understand what those people's lived experiences and stuff are mm. um yeah there's, too, there's so many experiences i know you're probably going to ask me about government later on but it's a, it's a classic feeling government yeah we've got unemployment there's a solution you can't do it that way mm. yeah absolutely so having spent a number of years now working in the social innovation sector roger how have you seen it transform and change over the last five odd years and where do you see it heading i think the main thing with social innovation is People are now getting it. They're understanding it. So, mm. you know, going back to that sort of the, the piece of work on the corporates, it was very much CSR came through in the, in the 90s, late 90s, and became the, the leading thing. P companies are now looking at that. Companies are now understanding, actually, there's more to this. Uh, this is about social innovation. This is about being innovative. Um, shared value is very timely with what Michael Porter's done there around uh, that as well. But also... Yeah. It's broken away up until a few years ago, certainly in the UK, people thought social innovation, social enterprise, the same thing. It's not, you know, mm -hmm. social enterprise only a very small part of innovation. Yeah. Social innovation, the fact that corporates and all are involved as well. So I think that that's where the sector is transforming in that, that there's a better understanding and it's opening up. Yeah. And I think going forward, that will, that will only increase. I think the big part to me is that bit. The big opportunity is in the in the business side because of those skills and resources, and also the impact of millennials coming through as well. Yeah, younger people. You know, I grew up in the eighties in the UK. That was Thatcher. It was all about loads of money and make as much money as possible. That mm. was kind of what was bred into you. Yeah. Whereas now, young people coming out of university, and this is coming through on all the Deloitte's questionnaires and surveys and stuff that young people want more they want purpose within a company as well yeah. it's not just about making a lot of money mm. um, and i think that's going to have a significant impact on companies and they need to start looking at social innovation and various things as well for talent retention if nothing else yeah yep absolutely Roger, just earlier you started to mention a little bit about government. So what do you believe are the key steps that government need to take to help foster and support an innovative social sector? Well, uh, yeah. You've got a couple of hours to talk about this. Um, <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. The first thing's attitude to risk. You know, we all talk about it. Anywhere, any government in the developed world, it's risk. Government doesn't doesn't do risk and yep. uh, will shy away from it. Also accountability to failure. Government will dole out a lot of money and if it doesn't work, they'll blame somebody else. They very rarely blame themselves. Yep. So a big, par big part of it is, if, I don't know if, you ever, if you've ever come across what they call psychological safety, uh, mm. what Google talks about. 
this this is not just government, but also right across social innovation. People within organizations need to be able to stick their head above the parapet and not fear that it's going to get shot off. Mm. This sort of fear of failure and recrimination of failure and blaming everybody else, that has to go. And, and that's there's a lot of that in government today. Yep. And a lot of it is very much about let's just change a policy or put a different support package in place. They've got to be more truly innovative. They've got to be more inclusive, mm. certainly with leadership and right across the board, which will then lead to more creativity and more innovation. Yep. And you'll create that culture, that internal culture, where everybody does want to stick their hand up and do stuff. Um, yep. So I think we need to take a leaf out of what Google's doing or, and what other similar organizations around this whole sort of psychological safety and, and mm. take, a few, take a few leaves out of the ideal handbook as well. Of, yep. of how to innovate. Just hearing you now reminds me of, of what a lot of Seth Godin talks about with this this lizard brain. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. And, yeah. And, and the fear to move forward and, and how that can effectively shut down uh, innovation. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're if you're scared to stick your hand up and do something, you know, you know, you're not going to do it. Mm. Um, you know, there's already a proportion of all companies in the world where you know. The talented people, if, the, if, the, if there's a culture of fear, they'll not stick their hand up. And then there's yeah. another there's another number of people within the company who are really just there to sort of do their nine to five and punch their card. Mm. So if you're going to kind of kill it all off, you know, we're just not going to innovate into the future. And uh, the civil service is a classic area where that needs to change. Yeah. Um, yeah. doesn't matter what country you're in. Mm, really interesting. So what countries then do you believe are really leading the charge when it comes to social innovation? And, and what are they doing that, that we can adopt uh, here in Australia or there in Ireland or, or elsewhere around the world? Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier on. I'm wondering, you know, is anyone really leading the charge? And I would say basically all countries are leading the charge because they're realizing the importance of it. You know, there's mm. some there's some great examples out there. I love what Lifehack are doing in Auckland. Yeah. Um, good stuff around mental health and, and getting the New Zealand government involved in that. I think that's a really, really good example of stuff that's going on. And mm. then what's going on out in Cape Town, our labs you know, harnessing technology and young people, I think is a cracking example of social innovation that's mm -hmm. gone out there. And then more laterally, sort of a lot of the work that I've done more recently has been in the United States and bringing a lot of that back. So there's some really, really good stuff. I love, I love what Kiva are doing with microfinance mm -hmm. and how that's empowering young people, you know, giving them loans. And I think the whole Kiva zip model is one that certainly we should look at. Um, I think it's been going a couple of years now, but that whole thing about, you know, young people don't necessarily have access to sort of guarantors and stuff but if they can get like a local minister in a community or a local somebody who's important um they can get those people to vouch for them which then gives them a bunch of cash to set up business and and that starts to to tackle into well-being and employability yeah. entrepreneurship so i think there's a number of really good examples out there but it's it's not necessarily any one country's leading the charge i think mm. you've got to really hunt around yeah there's so many really good good projects going out there so yeah fantastic Really good. I just want to step back to government for a second here, Roger. As someone who, who has an understanding of this, it'd be nice to know how you think that councils and governments might most effectively engage uh, the citizens in order to, to co-design these effective responses to complex sort of problems like the ones you're talking about. Yeah, I think I think actually we, we're actually in the middle of doing that with the Young Foundation here in Belfast with Belfast City Council. Um, they, they've, t they've taken... A decision in the last sort of year to work with us to say okay well here's four 
key areas across Belfast of high levels of deprivation. How do we actually get right down to that grassroots residence level mm-hmm. to sort of work with them to understand the key issues in those areas? That you know, the council itself was having real difficulty. There's a thing called locality planning over here where they're looking at all what they have to do in those areas. They were really struggling. So they asked the Young Foundation to come in and, and through that sort of um, tread lightly, listen deeply view that we take we've, we've worked with these four parts of belfast and belfast as you know is, is pretty complex so yeah. so two of the areas would be very sort of catholic nationalist areas and two are very protestant loyalist areas mm. uh so we had to do that so that the, there's those issues to start with but it's amazing once you actually do that piece and you start working with them and council starts to understand the, pr- the process as well that yeah. they see the value in that whole sort of deep ethnographic research, participatory mm. research, peer learning piece that actually can transform local areas. And um, it's it's an ongoing process, but we've had some real highlights in there. For example, one project, which is called the Diamond Ladies, yep. which is a bunch of uh, local ladies ranging from 16 years of age up to close to 70 or plus. And what they've done is they've, they've transformed a, a small area within East Belfast. Mm. They have transformed a couple of buildings into a local centre and they've called it the Diamond Hub. And they're just really engaging with everybody in that whole community to really transform it for everything from the traditional issues that we have over here around sectarianism and bonfires around the 12th mm. of July to more sort of, okay, well, how do we get young people into jobs? How do we tackle well-being and health, mental illness? You know, so... We've engaged a bunch of young ladies, as I say, who are not specialists in any any way. They're just they're just fully engaged in the community and they want to see change in that community. Yeah. So you know, so we've seen the power of that coming through, and council is taking that now forward as a, a way, as a model that they can use into the future. So I think other councils and stuff could do that as well, mm-hmm. uh, and then that obviously hopefully transfers up into more regional and national government to see that those processes work when you get into more inclusive economy type mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, there's some really, really inspiring projects and initiatives you've just mentioned there, Roger. So we'll uh, we'll stick a list of them at the bottom of your article as well so that people can, can click through and have a look uh, for themselves. Yes, so to finish off then, what books would you recommend to our listeners? Um, to me, anything by IDEO. If you get any design thinking book by IDEO, all usually pretty easy to read really easy to understand, you know, that that's where I get a lot of the stuff, inspiration to do the work that I do. But also the, the other author that I've basically read, anything that comes from is a guy called John Elkington. Mm. And the book that kind of, to me, is one of, not, not the Bible of social enterprise to me, but one that I take a lot of inspiration on, it's called The Power of Unreasonable People. Mm. If you can get your hands on that, I, I, I recommend you read that. I think it's a great book, um, just about what people have done globally around social enterprise and stuff like that. So John John Elkington and uh, I think Pamela Hardigan was the other co-author of that. Mm. But yeah, anything about IDEO, anything around design thinking, you know, that that's what we all need to be doing to sort of transform and do social innovation. Fantastic. Well, I'll stick those books at the bottom of the article as well, Roger. Roger, thank you so much for sharing your time and generous insights today. We, we very much look forward to touching base with you in the future and following your projects. Great. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And if anyone ever wants to get in touch, just, you know, more than happy to chat. That's what I say. Collaboration is the key to all of this. So if people want to chat, go for it. We did have quite a lot of interest in Australia with the book reserve at one stage. So I think it was picked up by quite a lot of people in Australia. So I don't know whether anyone copied it or did anything similar. I'd be interested to know. Great. Well, I'll stick your details at the bottom of the article as well. And people can get in touch via LinkedIn or Twitter. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter. Thank you.